you can't learn this stuff in textbooks. You can't learn this stuff in YouTube videos or online courses, or dare I say it, even business school. You only learn this stuff by doing it. So if you want to know if it's right for you, if you want to know if your idea is any good, all you need to do is start. Hi, and welcome to the Sliced Podcast, where we share startup stories from founders, investors, and CEOs from across the globe. A little bit about our platform, Startup Blog Post, is that we're a community where aspiring entrepreneurs and venture capital ecosystem stakeholders can share meaningful insights, engage with colleagues and peers, and stay informed. Welcome back to the Slice Podcast. Today's guest is Sean Mara, founder and CEO of HealthTap, a virtual first affordable, urgent, and primary care clinic that focuses on affordability for all Americans with or without insurance. Sean is Ivy educated and founded the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute, now known as Sci City, the official entrepreneurship center and incubator program at Yale. He is a serial entrepreneur and is working to rewire healthcare. Hi, Sean. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, I'm so excited to dive in. I have stalked your LinkedIn pretty thoroughly, and there is a lot there, Sean. You've done a lot of things. I have done a lot of things, but that's life. you got to stay busy and have fun. So I am excited to dive into this. So let's start with your background. So you are from New York, is that correct? Yeah. I was born in India to immigrant parents came to this country when I was two and moved to Queens right next to Shea Stadium. Don't tell anyone, but I'm actually a Yankees fan, even though I should be a Mets fan. As oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, I know. I know. But uh, I'm a New Yorker. Yeah. I love it. Do you remember living in India at all? Or are you too young to remember anything about it? Too young, of course, yeah. but it was a key part of growing up. I was back almost every year okay. to be with my, my family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so then you've had a pretty illustrious education. So I'd love for you to tell us about that. So you got your undergrad at Yale in biomedical engineering and you were pre-med. Yes. So was was your goal, were you going to be a doctor with that pre-med path? Was that the plan? I thought so. There were aspects of becoming a doctor that checked a lot of boxes for me in terms of career aspiration. You know, at the end of the day, it is one of the most purposeful, mission-driven jobs you can have, like being a teacher or a police officer you're fundamentally saving lives. And that appeals to anyone that is mission-driven. And so it felt like a safe choice. It was intellectually rigorous. It was scientifically based. It was a lot of things that I thought I would enjoy doing, but it ended up not being the right career for me. So did you realize that after you had fully gone through, so you graduated undergrad with that pre-med? I was, you know, there's a lot of physicians who have that epiphany after decades of training. And I was lucky to have this epiphany right after I took my MCATs before I started applying to med schools. So I pivoted early enough. Could you save yourself those application fees? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That was the key point. (laughs) So then you went on to get your graduate degree at Stanford, and that was an MBA. I did do that, yeah. So we pivoted to business. Did you have a plan with this pivot? Did you start to think, okay, maybe I'm going to do the entrepreneurship thing or not yet? So I can, I can tell you how kind of that decision went. There's a, a bit of a, a story there. So like I said, 
there was a lot that appealed to me about becoming a doctor. And so pre-med was an obvious default path for me. But what I found myself doing while at Yale was coding. Like I was actually a huge computer geek on my own by hobby and, and a designer, and I wanted to become a developer. And, and there was something so invigorating about building something literally overnight and then having something working, like a, a new tool or a new app. I mean, back in the early 2000s, mobile apps weren't a thing. So we're really talking about web application experiences in your browser. But still, it's amazing to think that you could have an idea one day and a working product the next day. And that was so fun for me as someone who at the end of the day is very much an engineer who likes building and creating things. And so I found all of my time going into that effort and less and less interest going into this idea of going through a decade plus of schooling to one day have the privilege of, of seeing patients on my own. So that kind of signaled to me that there was perhaps a different calling for me. And at some point I realized that technology can be as impactful as being a doctor and let you create that impact at a scale that is otherwise unachievable as an individual physician. If you just did the math in your head of how many minutes you may live and how many minutes you spend seeing each patient and how many patients you might see over the course of your, your lifetime, there's a finite number of people you will at the end of the day help. And whatever number you come up with as a doctor sees patients, you could help that many people in milliseconds with a product that is helping people at scale. Obviously, it has to be the right product, but there was something about the scalability of the impact through technology, which was even more appealing for me. And the immediacy of the feedback loop of building something and knowing whether it was working or not working, whether people liked it or didn't like it, whether it was helping or not helping. And so I did the obvious next thing, next best thing from helping people as a doctor and saving lives. Obviously, that was to make video games. So, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> obviously, it was a, no. So, actually, completely unrelated to the idea of helping people with their health and happiness. I guess you could argue video games help with entertainment and some, therefore, some happiness. But it was just a random business idea that a friend had approached me, said, approached me with saying, Sean, what do you have to lose? Just help me out with this idea. I think it's an interesting one. We should create this game. I think a lot of people enjoy it. And I was like, sure. As a hobby, as a side project, I'll take it on. But as often things in life go, that idea became a venture-backed business with a virally growing user base with all this press coverage and now venture capital investors. And all of a sudden, I'm a senior in college with employees and a company generating revenue. And I'm like, how did this happen? <laughs> I never thought I was going to become a game developer. But you know, such things in life are often serendipitous. The reason I went to Stanford to get my MBA because I had a few years of a good run building products at the end of the day that whose purpose was to entertain folks. And as I told you, my calling was to have a different sense of impact in people beyond entertainment. And I was quickly finding myself becoming an industry expert in an area I never planned on becoming an industry expert in. So after one venture-backed failure and then one bootstrap success, I said, I need to take a step back. And before I get in too deep, just zoom out on my life, reorient on where I want to go. And what better place than honestly business school, because it is a curriculum designed to give you two years to talk to a lot of very different 
types of amazing people and figure out what you want to do with your life. Right. That's awesome. So were you still, when you are when you were in business school, were you still working on these projects or you took a full step back and said, okay, I'm going to devote my time to school right now? I did something that I do not recommend to other folks, which is I fell in love with the company that I founded and am the CEO of today between my first and second year. So I very quickly in my first year of business school had the realization that here I was an undergraduate pre-med, thought I wanted to be a doctor, finding myself having gone down a path of becoming a technologist that builds engaging digital products for consumers that hold on, maybe there's an intersection of these two worlds. And then these are two not mutually exclusive paths. And it was actually on a global study trip with classmates in India, where I met with this physician, Dr. Davy Shetty. He's a doctor. And instead of seeing patients one at a time, he had built hospitals, rethinking how to make the delivery of healthcare in India higher quality, lower cost. And here was an individual physician who had built a platform to scale his impact. And so a light bulb just went off in my head. And I said, well, what if I did that too? That would check all my boxes. Could I build a platform to scale impact in the same way that doctors do, which is to help people live happier, healthier lives? And it was then that I immediately knew I was onto something that was going to become very big. So this is also kind of being in the right time at the right place, the right context of history. But in 2010, it was the birth of digital health as we know it today. A lot of the original companies that realized that there was a new way doctors and patients could connect on the internet and through apps were being founded at that time. And I knew I was on the cusp of something that was going to become a growing industry for decades to come. And I could be one of the early pioneers. So I got very deep into the space very early while I was still in business school. And I joined the founding team of HealthTap, where I am today, originally as a quote unquote summer intern. I was like, you know what? This is a group of people I really like. I'm going to help them get a product going by the end of the summer. And then we'll figure out how second year goes. I never really returned back to second year. I graduated. I got my degree, but no one ever saw me around campus second year. I sacrificed a lot as a student to basically pursue something I fell in love with earlier than I expected. Yeah. And I mean, if everybody takes a different path to where they get to today, and although maybe you wouldn't recommend it for others, obviously it worked out great for you. And I think that's awesome. I also have a note here that I do before we go down the health tap road. I want to circle back to this. Did Mark Zuckerberg contact you about one of your oh. early... That's a funny anecdote. <laughs> I have to ask about it because I'm really curious. So it's a funny anecdote just because it just reminds me of the time in history when I was starting my entrepreneurial career. But my class was one of the first classes after Mark Zuckerberg's Harvard class to join something called thefacebook.com. And the so Facebook.com. The Facebook.com. The logo <laughs> was still a silhouette of his head. It was just a very different time. And one of my side projects while I was pre-med was this like Google calendar meets Facebook groups website called Student Planet. And it had basically gotten some pickup from the Yale Daily News or Daily Campus newspaper. And I don't know, I guess there was something called Google Alerts even back then. And some guy at Harvard who was on this thing called the facebook.com saw that Google alert because in that Yale Daily News article, there's only a handful of startups 
within the Ivy League that were relevant. And we were being covered in that article. And they, in passing, mentioned this, the Facebook.com startup at our rival college campus. And I guess he saw that. And one of my first Facebook messages is from Mark. Oh my God. Do you still have it? I do. I think I screenshot it. I'm pretty sure I could scroll way back up and in just my try history. and find it. Yeah. So it's a little like artifact of history. I sometimes wonder how I could have responded differently and my career would have gone down a very different <laughs> path than it did. But I, I think it was a very flippant, like, who's this Harvard undergrad wishing me good luck? I'm just going to wish him good luck on his startup and <laughs> be on my own. That is <laughs> so cool. I love it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you brought up the Yale Daily News, which reminded me. So the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute, you founded that. Is that correct? Yeah. When you were there or did you go back and was that something you did later? It's so funny. Sometimes being an entrepreneur means if you want to be an astronaut, you have to build your own rocket. And so you have to build your own NASA. So so that's really the metaphor is, is we wanted to be entrepreneurs while we were in New Haven at Yale. And there was a dearth of support and infrastructure and mentorship. And so for somewhat selfish motivation, we pitched a few of the right folks in the administration, the creation of some support and infrastructure to enable our own success. But we did it in a way, I mean, we're engineers, we're platform thinkers. So we said the way to get this going is not just for it to benefit us most immediately, but for it to become something that pays dividends for many others like us now and in the future that could benefit from the similar support infrastructure. So the idea was to create this ecosystem and curriculum and program and fellowship that funded, coached, mentored, supported Yale entrepreneurs. So, and it lived on. Uh, Fortunately, we built it in a way that it became one of our legacies on campus. And then it continued to evolve in its many forms today. It's something called Sci City after some fantastic funding from some generous alumni. And it's helped, uh, it's helped make that group of already very bright minds more entrepreneurial than they were before. I think that's really impressive. The initiative you had to take as a student to go before, you know, faculty. I'm sure that was not easy. I'm sure they made you jump through some hoops to get that done and to be taken seriously. And I think that's really impressive. Yeah, I think it really just boiled down to not just passionate pitches, but leading by action. It wasn't even asking for permission as saying, we're doing this and we'd love your support in doing it. And when you have people that are hungry enough who are actually doing the work, why would you stop them, right? Why would you stop them? And I think that was that initiative taking that really helped lubricate the change. Right. So skipping back to HealthTap, you start as a summer intern. You are clearly an intern no more. So things go well. What was it like (laughs) for you to be on the ground floor? Because previously you were still a student, so you were doing your entrepreneurial things as a student. So in in this particular company, what was it like for you to familiarize yourself with things like funding or pitching VCs? Was that a learning curve for you or did you feel confident based on your educational background and prior experience to tackle that? Yeah. So I learned to swim by jumping at the deep end of the pool. I mean, if you recall, I had a venture-backed company with employees as a senior in college and it was never by design. It just happened. So there was a lot of learning that happened early and hard for me. So I wasn't unfamiliar with the ropes of general entrepreneurship. One of the other epiphanies I had about me during business school was this dichotomy between entrepreneurs, some who need to be founders, 
by identity and some that are okay with being entrepreneurial leaders. And the difference here is ownership of the idea, right? So a founder is one who says, this was my baby, this was my idea, and I'm kind of the listed inventor of the company. An entrepreneurial leader who says, I don't have, I don't want to say the ego, but my identity doesn't come from being the one where the idea originated from. It is around the journey of building something from very little and creating commercial and societal success off of that idea. And I learned very quickly that it wasn't important for me to be a founder. So once that was true, it opened up my aperture to say, I am completely comfortable with the idea of joining an existing team with an idea that has legs that I'm excited about. And so HealthTap was a group of people and at best a high level idea that doctors and consumers need to connect on the internet in some more efficient way that I said, this is great for a few reasons. First of all, it's a really refreshing way of looking at healthcare. I mean, you should take two sides of a marketplace, supply and demand, consumers and doctors, and get them to transact in a more efficient way in this ubiquitous new medium that is the internet. That just makes a lot of sense. It is a very grassroots way of disrupting the way healthcare is done than going to institutions and governments and insurance companies and trying to make change from the top down amongst incumbents who would be resistant to change and disruption. Let's go grassroots. So the idea made sense. The second thing was there was already a really great group of people that had gelled around this with very complementary skill sets. Sure, I could go and try to chase and find my own idea, but since being the founder wasn't as important to me as having the right idea with the right group of people, I said, you know what? I'm still in school. It sounds like you need someone to help you build this thing. You still need to figure out what it is we're building. So let me join you guys for the summer. And if the fit's there, we'll see how it goes and we'll continue working together. And exactly what happened is at the end of the summer, as a quote unquote intern, I found myself shipping the company's first mobile apps, which was actually a way for people to ask doctors questions on the internet and for doctors to answer those questions for free through an app. And it was this cool new concept and it started taking off and it didn't make sense for me to stop at the end of the summer. Yeah. Can you tell me with HealthTap, why is the focus of affordability so important to you? I think the part that healthcare hasn't health digital health startups haven't cracked yet is a way to be useful for a majority of Americans. And that is not their fault. It is natural for any commercial enterprise to chase the low-hanging fruit of revenue and where the business is, where the customers are. And unfortunately, the super obvious way our healthcare industry is set up is that the people who pay for the services are not the people who consume the services or provide the services. So if you want to get paid as a business in healthcare, you often have to do business with insurance companies or employers who act as insurance companies. And so a lot of companies have created business models that are focused on a value proposition to insurers and employers. But the people that actually need their products are the policyholders and the employees who work for them. And the reality is there's a large and growing segment of this country that doesn't get healthcare through their HR team. You know, more than half this country is uninsured, is underinsured, I should say, sorry, underinsured. They're on some high deductible plan where they have to pay thousands of dollars before it becomes even covered. They are 1099 workers, contractors, freelancers, ride-sharing drivers, delivery guys, uh, you know, warehouse workers, cashier clerks. There's a growing segment of the economy that don't get good health benefits. 
because of the nature of their employment. And then you have one in 10 Americans trade up uninsured. And the reason I'm so passionate about it is, again, it comes down to impact, right? Creating businesses that have impact. I realized that it doesn't have to be this way. There's probably a way to build a successful business, but by creating a product at a price point that you can go to those individuals and families directly and say, with or without insurance, with a credit card, I can connect you with a doctor affordably. And so that's what excites me about what HealthTap is doing today. I mean, there were many paths along the way for us to make money through other means, but this is what gets me going every morning when I wake up. Hello, everybody. It's Sam, the producer of the show. Just wanted to pop in real quick and thank you for listening to the Slice podcast. We really appreciate all of the support and we hope that you will enjoy the rest of the episode. Coming up, Sean takes us through what he believes it means to be an entrepreneur and how he will always be an entrepreneur at heart. Can you tell me when you look back at your entrepreneurial career up until this moment, is there a particular obstacle that you had to overcome or a time you thought, okay, I'm taking a really big risk and kind of ultimately how that turned out for you for the good or for the bad? Because I understand being an entrepreneur, there is a hearty amount of risk that goes into any company, would you say? I'll use the word entrepreneurship loosely here because I don't think entrepreneurship means starting a business. I think entrepreneurship can mean pursuing your own music career as an artist. It can mean going down the path less traveled to try something new. That's what entrepreneurship means to me. And it takes many flavors and it doesn't always have to be starting a for-profit, you know, enterprise venture-backed business in the stereotypical way. And I think the hardest part about entrepreneurship is no one understands until everyone understands. So it is a pretty lonely endeavor for a long time. And the reason is because inherently you're doing something new and human beings are not good at understanding new things. There's an asymmetry of information at the early years. You have an idea and a vision that is in your head and you can try your best to explain it to your friends and your family and people that will support you, but they're always working with less information than the vision that you have in your mind. So you'll always find resistance or skepticism or cynicism or just doubt. Like, why are you doing that? And why haven't you given up yet? And, you know, does that even make sense? And it requires a tremendous amount of self-conviction that you need to just stay in the fight because the payoff will come. And, you know, the, the sad and scary reality of the probabilities is sometimes the payoff never comes, but until you try, you don't know. And entrepreneurship takes longer than anyone ever thinks. And uh, requires a lot more persistence and resilience as a result than people usually anticipate. And so the hardest part is waking up every morning and convincing yourself to keep going because no one else is going to do that for you. Does that ever get easier or do you still feel that way today? Well, that's what it is. No one understands until everyone understands and everyone understands when you're successful. But at that point, it's after the fact, right? So at some point, the tables turn and you have a successful enterprise on your hands. And all of a sudden, people are like, oh, duh, this is an obvious idea. It makes total sense. So cool that you did that. But that's not, this is not necessarily what those same people were saying earlier. And it's not out of a want to support. It's just out of an inability to understand. A naivete, I guess. You are doing something that is important to you and only you can understand. That is why you are doing it and others aren't. 
even your closest family and friends can try to support you. But at times when things get tough, they'll question, why are you doing this? Is it worth it? And it is only you most of the time that can convince yourself to keep going. So I think the hardest part is understanding that it can be lonely and it requires persistence, but you won't know if it's worth it until you try. Mm -hmm. That kind of leads me organically into my next question, which was, do you have a piece of advice for maybe young entrepreneurs who will listen to this podcast? Anything that you'd like to share with them? Maybe something you wish you would have known when you were first getting started back in college? My predisposition has been a bias for action. And I see most entrepreneurs trip up on over-analysis. They think themselves out of action. They think themselves into the wrong action. There's no substitute for just starting. And it sounds so cliche, but you can't learn this stuff in textbooks. You can't learn this stuff in YouTube videos or online courses, or dare I say it, even business school. You only learn this stuff by doing it. So if you want to know if it's right for you, if you want to know if your idea is any good, all you need to do is start. Because I guarantee you, the more you talk to people about it, the more you study it, you could equally convince yourself out of it as into the wrong thing. Just start. Just start collecting data. Just start working. And I think, again, I was fortunate in that that was my nature. I was just a doer. I get itchy if we just talk about things too long. I just want to go execute. Even if it means screwing it up, at least I'll learn from it. I think that's what entrepreneurship requires, a tremendous amount of iteration through real-world data. Yeah, I think that's great advice. What does your day-to-day today with HealthTap kind of look like? My involvement with HealthTap is is unique. It's not the common path where if you found a company, you kind of have to deal with all the shit up front, excuse my language, all the time. I had a progressive journey where I started as the head of product in the company. I then wore slightly more hats doing strategy and business development and partnerships and this and that. Now that I wore the CEO hat, I have ultimate responsibility on the finances, on how we make money, on what our expenses are, on strategy, vision, recruiting, making sure the right people around the table, advisors, employees, board members. And so my day-to-day has evolved meaningfully from thinking about what we're building and how we get it to work better for our users as a head of product to now, like how much money we have in the bank and who do I need to raise money from and how do I get more from my customers by delivering a great value service. So I would say more of my time is spent on selling the story and the vision, whereas earlier it was in building. I'm a builder. I love getting in the weeds and talking design and development and what we build and how we tweak it. And that's not the reality anymore. 90% of my time, and I'm saying it's any, not any less fun. It's, it's, if anything, as important work, but you are the chief evangelist when you're at the top. And your, your job is to set the vision and convince people to be on board with that vision whether they're investors or customers or employees. Mm-hmm. As a natural born entrepreneur yourself, do you see yourself innovating in the future after HealthTap or alongside HealthTap? Do you always have ideas? Do they just pop into your head or do you think this will be it for you? It's a good question. I think I will always be entrepreneurial. I like taking the path less traveled. It's just more fun. That is going to be my way of life. Now, again, using the idea of entrepreneurship loosely, I will always be an entrepreneur. 
if that means starting my own company, it's too hard to say at this point. Probably, yes. But I'm not too worried about it. I also, again, like well, I said- Well, you have your hands full. <laughs> no, no. I Just to take it back to my earlier point, it's best not to know the exact path because you're going to get stuck overthinking and it's unimportant, right? I have a compass. I know in what direction it points and there may be winds that shift me left and right, but generally if my ship is going in the right direction, I'll get to the continent where I want to be. So that's how I'm thinking about it. Yeah. I would love to know a little bit about because you're currently in the Bay Area, is that correct? Yes. So can you speak to what it's been like through all your entrepreneurial ventures and how they relate to being in the Bay Area? Do you think that's improved your odds of success being in the largest hub in, I don't know, the world? Would you say the world? The U.S. for sure. Maybe the world. Depends. I think that is probably shifting and changing over mm-hmm. time. But do you think that's had an impact at all or no? Yes and no. This kind of is similar to why did I choose to go to schools like Yale and Stanford versus some really fantastic options I had locally in Long Island. And I think there's a truth to both sides. There is a privilege that you get when you're in the right place with the right people. There's a benefit of the doubt you're conferred. There is a bounty of opportunity like all around It takes nothing more than a conversation to people just trust that you know what you're doing and they let you run with it with resources. I mean, that is really a privilege. And so that handicaps you in a a positive way. That makes things easier. Is that the only way to succeed? No. Sometimes actually, when you have to create your own success, you find greater success because there's fewer people like you in that area doing that thing, right? So while you can be in Silicon Valley or an Ivy League school, You have tremendous benefit of doubt and resources and opportunity, but you also have way more competition and it's really a lot harder to stand out. And the exact opposite is true in other places. So I know this is deviating from the conversation about geography, but my point is there's different flavors of success to be had in different places. And I don't think either one is better than the other. It's just a different flavor. I think Silicon Valley in general and a few other centers in this country, like Cambridge, like New York City have been blessed with a lot of fantastic human and financial capital concentrated in one place that was hard to not get the support and resources you need for an idea that you wanted to go pursue. But that is shifting and the pandemic has accelerated that shift. More and more workers are working remotely. More and more investors are distributing across the country and the world. And more and more business is done virtually. And so I don't think that will be true in the long run. I think there will still be some benefit of you know, the casual collaboration and run-ins you have with people. I mean, it's it's an advantage to be able to go to a coffee shop and run into someone and spark a relationship or conversation that you wouldn't have planned otherwise versus messaging someone on LinkedIn or sending them an email and trying to get their attention intentionally, but different flavors of success and to each his own. Yeah. Speaking of, what is your definition of success? I think leaving the world a little bit better than when you left it. This year has been difficult on many fronts for many of us. One of the things I've learned is that life is random, life is short, and it's really hard to know how much time any of us have on this earth. That all you can do each day is, and this is going to be so cliche, but it's it's what I live by, is 
do good things with good people for good people. That's really what it boils down to in the day. For some people, that's being the best mom or dad to their kids. And that is a life well-lived. For some, it is leaving some sort of legacy that touches many, many lives beyond their family. And there's all sorts of people in between. But I think at the end of the day, I very much believe, again, coming from my Indian roots in this idea of dharma and karma. Dharma is taking the righteous path, whatever that means to you. And karma is taking action towards that righteous path. And that's all you can do. If you're waking up every day saying, I'm doing good work with good people for good people, you can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. I love that. Dharma and karma. You hear karma, not so much dharma. Dharma with D-H-A-R-M-A is the complement to karma. So karma is the action. They say karma is a B. That's saying, you know, do unto others as others would do unto you. The idea is that your actions have consequences. Karma is your acts. Dharma is that framework that helps you decide what is right versus what is wrong. So typically you perform karma towards your dharma. You take action towards what you think is the right the right things to be doing. And what's really neat about that, the way at least Indian culture has taught this concept is it's all contextual. There is no absolute right and wrong and a universal set of principles for all of mankind. It is depends on who you are in your moment in life and what you're working with. And so do what you think is right with the people you enjoy being around for the people you want to do them, those things for. Love it. Well, I learned something there. So <laughs> thank you so much. Is there anything else before I let you go that you'd like the listeners to know either about yourself, your journey, health tap, anything at all, anything you'd like to leave them with? I think that was a very good I think that was a really good Yep, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I yeah. Agree. So we'll leave it at that. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Sean. It was great to chat with you this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much. And let's stay in touch. I'm happy to help anyone that is interested in mentorship or coaching. Like I love to give back. You can say for the public record, my email is seanmerritt@gmail.com, and I'm not afraid of spam. So <laughs> <laughs> You might <laughs> get I'm, some after this, but we'll leave it in. <laughs> thank you so much. That was really kind. Thank you. To learn more about today's guest, please visit startupblogpost.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, check back weekly for new episodes, and follow us at Slice Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Facebook.